0: Jim it's the world of bonds and I'm here on my second special guest of the summer it's Duncan Weldon. Duncan writes about the British economy for The Economist magazine you will also know him from the BBC as economics correspondent for Newsnight and he's got a great new book out it's called 200 years of muddling through Um, it's a story of the, the British economy from boom to bust and back again. Hiya Duncan.
1: Hi Jim thanks for having
0: me on. Well, tell us about the book. Um, It's all about the kind of accidents of geography, politics and history that resulted in Britain being the epicentre of the Industrial Revolution. And then I guess the the rest of the book's about its decline post uh, the two world wars and to where we are today. So what what were you aiming to to do when you wrote the book and what's
1: it about? Yeah, I mean, that's that's probably the best and most succinct description of the book I've heard. So, you know, thanks for that. Um, I think if the book has a as a central message, it's that path dependency matters, which is this idea in economic history and economics that, you know, where you are obviously matters, but how you got to where you are matters as well. So, you know, the road to where you are now affects where you are now. You know, I think of it in terms of that really bad, not, partic- you know, not particularly funny joke of the tourist asking a man for directions and the man saying, well, if I was you, I wouldn't start from here. Because, you know, that's too often forgotten when we look at economics, when we look at politics, that you know, policymakers don't get to choose where they're starting from. And I think to understand where Britain is today, you have to understand this you know, 200-odd years of economic development closed off some roads to us, has left the choices we've got now you know, constrained by the past.
0: Yeah, because I guess um, there was a time, wasn't there, when we were we were all kind of baldrics from Blackadder uh, going around in our own muck and so forth. But then then along came the Black Death. And, you know, there were a couple up until that point, really, you looked at the center of global economics and human development. And it was in the Middle East or it was in Southern Europe or it was in China. And then all of a sudden the Black Death comes along and Northern Europe, not the other, the only reason, of course, but one of the most important ones.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. So, you know, people, you know, we tend to talk about the great divergence, this moment when Europe sort of breaks away, you know, income per head grows much faster than in Asia, in uh, the Americas, in Africa. And, you know, Europe's rise to sort of global prominence. But yeah, I mean, that what I think is even more interesting than the great divergence is its, is its earlier cousin. The little divergence, this shift of the economic center of Europe from being the shores of the Mediterranean to the slightly colder shores of the Northeast in sort of England and um, across, the, across the North Sea in the Dutch Republic. And you're right. I mean, um, yet one of the big events there is the Black Death. You know, it's important to remember that before the Industrial Revolution, you know, the, the world is this Malthusian world. In a Malthusian world, there's this inverse relationship between income per head. And the number of people, you know, um, productivity growth hasn't taken off. So generally, as population levels rise, um, income per head falls. Um, you know, whereas when population drops, income per head rises. So the Black Death comes along. You know, we talk about economic shocks. There aren't as many as shocking as the as the Black Death. I mean, it kills a third of the population in Europe. But in a Malthusian world, it's a very grim. It's a zero sum world. If you kill a third of the population, income per head rises. Now, what's interesting is, you know, that happens across Europe, but what's interesting is the gains from the Black Death last longer in Northern Europe. In Southern Europe, you get a couple of generations of people being better off, then it peters out. One big reason for that is a later marriage age in Northern, in Northern Europe. People get married later, that means fertility is, um, in terms of number of births per woman over a lifetime, is lower. So these gains from the Black Death last longer in Northern Europe. And that helps make England and across the sea, the Netherlands, two of the richest places in Europe, even before the Industrial Revolution. And, you
0: know, when you talk about Malthus, the explosion, the, the thing that makes Malthus turn out to be wrong was really productivity gains for for the North. Yeah. And partly you put this down to the type of agriculture that we were involved in in northern europe compared to the mm-hmm. south so much more about animal farming further north much more about arable farming further south and so there's something about the agricultural mix of europe that allowed the the kind of productivity miracle to happen in the north but not in the south
1: yeah i think that's fair i mean i think um it's a different pattern of agriculture and sort of the pattern of agriculture you get in Northern Europe is much more reliant on, well, if one better phrase, capital than than labour. It's much higher value add, or you know, more profitable. It looks more like sort of, you know, head use the phrase sort of proto capitalist enterprise and the kind of kind of agriculture you get in Southern Europe. And you learn a lot of sort of skills from that, which are then much more transferable into a more modern commercial and even industrial economy. So you know, you add together, um, you add together sort of. Later marriage age and fertility patterns, the nature of agriculture, you know, a bit of stuff around geography. You know, I mean, in a a pre-industrial era, you know, moving stuff by water is cheaper. Britain is obviously an island, so surrounded by water. Plus, it's got lots of easily navigatable um, rivers. You know, all of these sort of accidents of geography and history. But, you know, I mean, this is the important thing. Even before the Industrial Revolution, Britain is already... A commercialised economy and one of the richest places in Europe, and then what you get is a real, a real takeoff when productivity growth really, you know, starts in the Industrial Revolution.
0: And, and how much of this advantage, even before the revolution what Industrial Revolution, was about uh, the institutions? You do talk yeah. about that, and you know the contrast between Spain, maybe where um, the state would default periodically, yeah. and Britain, as it was, where the, yeah. the rule of law and lawyers and stability of institutions seems more important.
1: I think that, again, yeah, I and mean, I think, you know, we've got to be really clear when we, you know, when I talk about institutions, I'm very much using the economist definition of institution, which is, you know, not necessarily something with a front door you can go and knock on. I mean, more sort of the rules of the game, you know, respectful law, the idea that property rights will be respected, that if you sign a contract, that contract will probably be safeguarded. And yeah, the institutional setup in, in Britain, um, particularly after the Glorious Revolution, when people tend to date it, date it a bit earlier. But certainly by the 1700s, the institutional setup in Britain is quite different. Um, now, it's still, you know, there's a wonderful paper by Douglas North, um, sort of prize-winning, uh, Nobel Prize-winning economic historian, um, Sort of developing, you know, sort of tracking the institutional development of human societies from the, the Neolithic age to now, one of those sort of sweepingly ambitious papers that economists occasionally write. And he's got this very simple framework that he says for most of human history, you know, mankind is, is ruled by what he calls closed closed access orders which is to see what he calls violence specialists politely you know, thugs would be a better word you know violence specialists realize that now that we've got settled agriculture you know growing your own crops is quite hard work um, hitting people with a club and taking their crops is, is a bit easier and so your societies develop around these violence specialists um, controlling societies and they become more developed and you know the most successful violence specialists get titles like baron duke and king eventually but this is still Generally, the order of societies. Then you start to see these more open access orders developing. Um, and you in Britain and in the Dutch Republic, these things develop earlier. The violence specialists start to do deals with sort of the merchant elite, bring them into the system. So what you're left with is this, this institutional setup in Britain where you know, I certainly wouldn't call it democratic, um, and the elite is still tiny. Um, but it's it's a bit larger than it is in say France or Spain, and that leads to some interesting um, some interesting developments. So, you know we tend to think of Britain as a sort of small L liberal state and compared to you know, absolutist France, but the British state may have been more liberal, but it also was more effective um, because you've got this buy-in from the merchant and commercial elite. It find the state finds it easier to tax. So although the state is. Um, you know we think of it as liberal rather than absolutist. It can get much more tax revenue per head out of its um, citizens and because you 've got this sort of commercial um, merchant elite buy into the state, it finds it easier to raise taxes. it finds it easier to borrow and just generally becomes more effective so you know it, it can pay for the debts involved in major wars. it can construct a large navy and yeah there there is something going on there that this slightly more open order allows you to bind a wider variety of elites into the state. And you, you look at Britain or you look at the Dutch Republic and you compare them to France and Spain, which are much larger, more powerful countries, much of the early modern period. But it's Britain and the Dutch who really rise to the fore. And it's, you know, it's interesting, it's the British and the Dutch who are really the big beneficiaries from the discovery of the Americas and the opening of the Atlantic trade in the long run, because these states are just better suited for that more commercial trading world.
0: I'm talking about the difference between Britain and France. You talk about the pyramid of heads in in France. What, what, looking over the channel at uh, what was happening with the French Revolution, did that, did that influence what happened next in the uk? Did it mean that we had to be more um, conciliatory towards low, you know the fearful of a revolution, so they, they couldn't allow that to happen, and that was productive for, for growth longer term?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, isn't it? So you need to, I think, yes, I mean, you know, another theme of the book is that political economy matters at all times. You're trying to understand the economy, particularly over the longer run, without understanding political developments makes no sense. And trying to understand what's happening in politics without looking at economic change makes no sense. You have to look at both sides of the coin. And yeah, it's interesting that the the industrial revolution in Britain, more or less coincides with the French Revolution, you know, a, a political revolution in, um, in France. And that certainly colors sort of early 19th century, um, early 19th century British politics. It, it, I mean, it is fascinating to look back that, you know, any, any demand from sort of the unenfranchised bulk of the population for rights, whether being social or economic rights, no matter how modest this to modern is, you know, is heard by the then-existing British elite as sort of an echo of French Jacobinism and you know the, the possible start of a of a political revolution. Um, so I think I mean it is interesting, isn't it? You know, early nineteenth-century Britain is a fascinating place, and that you've had the Industrial Revolution, you've had this rise in average income per head, you've now got faster growth than the country has probably ever had in two thousand years or so, and yet for the first Thirty or forty years. I mean, it's a fairly miserable place for this new workforce. You know, this is the era of satanic mills, of um, cities becoming sort of mortality sinks, growing rapidly. um, You know, of an increase in child labour, of uh, people working much longer working weeks, and they're really not seeing much in terms of rising real incomes for most workers until the mid-19th century. You got this. It's, I mean, I always find it interesting. You know, one one thing I learned while writing the book was, you know, you come in there with your sort of, you know, um, trained economist hat, and your instinct is Luddites, what a bunch of idiots. And then you you read about the conditions, the uh, you learn about the conditions the Luddites were going through, and you you, you start to think, yeah, I, yeah I, the Luddites had sort of a point. <laughs> is the is the conclusion?
0: Well, and there's some close. Uh, shaves, as well, you had the peterloo massacre there were there were attempts to um well, I guess that was a peaceful demonstration that turned into violence. Yeah. But um, but nevertheless, I, I guess we can't get more than 10 minutes into this conversation without getting to the Corn Laws, which are kind of uh, <laughs> uh, almost a cliche of something you talk about when you talk about the British uh, e- economy growing up to some extent, yeah. extent. And that was the creation of, I guess, what you describe, or other people have described as naive-proof uh, system for the UK, where you have free trade, you have balanced budgets and you have the gold standard and you know are the corn laws really perhaps the most important the repeal of the corn laws i guess the most important moment in turning the uk's position around to become the world leader
1: yeah it's fascinating isn't it so you know it's 1846 you know so the corn laws were you know you know, tariffs on foreign grains put in place at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. This was sold as a national security thing, but what it recognizably was was the very powerful landed agricultural elite keeping out foreign grain, keep their own prices high. You know That's repealed in the mid-1840s. And this sort of huge set piece, wonderful example of political economy battle between the old landed elite who still had a disproportionate amount of political power even if their share of the overall economy had declined versus this new commercial and industrial um, capital owners, you know, factory owners, mill owners, whatever, um, and much of the, not yet in the political system, but whose voice mattered working class, you know, for the, for the sort of middle class owners of capital, you know, ditching the corn laws seems to be a win on loads of different ways. You'll be able to import cheap grain, Real wages will rise, you might be able to pay your workers less. And because Britain is now going to be buying grain overseas, you know, these foreigners from whom we are buying grain will have a bit more money, and maybe they will buy British manufactured goods. You know, huge fight, you know, it splits the Tory party, but it's eventually passed and it's and it's a huge moment. You know, for the next well, certainly for the next fifty years, the idea that Britain should just be an open, free trading nation, no tariffs a unilateral free trader, is really deeply embedded into Britain. And actually, that lasts into the, into the 20th century. But, you know, you talk about the naive-proof system, and that, that's, you know, free trade's part of that. It's what we end up with. We end up with this sort of trinity of um, rules around, um, you know, how, how Victor, mid to late Victorians and Edwardians think the economy should be run. So you've got free trade. You know, unilateral free trade, no tariffs on anything, no discrimination, not even for empire goods or non-empire goods. Whatever British people want to buy, they can buy. Free trade is the first. Then you've got balanced budgets and the idea that, yes, you know, the, the budget every year is, is an accounting exercise. How much money are we going to spend? How are we going to raise the taxes to pay for it? You know, the fiscal policy is not a tool of economic policy. It's about paying for, generally, the Navy and the Army, and a few other limited functions paying for it with um, tax. And then you've got the gold standard. You know, um, sterling is pegged to the price of gold. Interest rates are used to maintain that peg, again, not for economic management. And politicians came to call this a nave proof system. You know, they were binding their hands on monetary policy, binding their hands on fiscal policy, giving up an act of trade policy. And the idea was that this would be a sort of self writing mechanism that the you know, economy would just run itself. Politicians wouldn't be interfering, and there was a really deep-rooted fear that the moment politicians started you know, interfering, it would all become very corrupt, and it would be about politicians promising different voters different, um, you know, tax cuts or payoffs, whatever. So, I mean, it is just. I mean, it's almost like Victorian Britain didn't have an economic policy as we would recognise it. You know, and they certainly didn't have a conception of GDP. They didn't have the data that we take, for example, now. And this. This is a system which lasts in many ways up until the First World War, and then much of the story of interwar Britain is of attempts to re- replicate this nave proof system in a world in which it no longer it no longer works.
0: So uh, you know, twenty years after the Corn Laws were re- repealed, um, Britain had forty percent of all global manufacturing exports, and even be- in the run-up to World War One, it was only down to thirty percent, which is similar, I think, you say, to what China is today. You know, completely dominant. And then World War Two,
1: sorry, World War One comes along, and, and that's kind of the beginning of the end, isn't it? Yeah, just to just to go back to that sort of, you know, if you look at Britain in sort of the 1910s before the war, I mean, firstly, this is the great, you know, first golden age of globalization. You know, in many measures, you know, the world is as globalized in 1913 as it is in 1980,
0: uh, oh, more is more than so The mind. barrel of a gun is is the empire, is is the the kind of imperialism, mm-hmm. is that. Part of its success, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think sort of capi- you know, capitalism, globalization, and imperialism all run together in the late 19th century. Although we should remember that, you know, Europe was the big market for British manufactured goods rather than the empire. The empire might have been large, but income per head was generally quite low in much of it. So, you know, there wasn't much demand for, for British goods. But, you know, Britain's place in that world, Britain is, as you just said, you know, it's a, it has a share of global manufactured goods trade comparable to China's. Nowadays, you know, it is a major manufacturing player. It's also the centre of global finance in a fairly unchallenged way. You know, New York is rising, but I mean, London is more dominant in 1913 than at any other point as a global financial centre. And Britain is the largest um, net exporter of coal. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of the Saudi Arabia of the energy market. You know, it's, it's sort of fulfilling. You know, it's sort of China of manufacturing, Saudi Arabia of energy, and America of finance in the current world are all in Britain tremendously important global player. And yes, the, the First World War is the beginning of the end of that. Um, you know, Britain is this enormous international creditor um, nation in 1913. You know, partially because Britain industrializes first. And saving is something, you, you know, saving is a luxury good. You save, the more you're earning, the more you save. Because Britain becomes much richer, much quicker than other countries, it develops this big pool of savings. And then as other countries start to industrialize, you know, the city of London funnels those savings around the world where they're offering the best return. And Britain is this huge credit donation. And you really start to see the liquidation of those assets in the First World War. You know, stuff that's taken the Victorian 60, 70 years to amass, then gets run down in three or four years. And Britain emerges from the war with its international position transformed from cred, um, credit to debtor, with a much higher government debt to GDP ratio than it went into the war. And with a a larger state, so you get this big jump in the size of the state in the First World War, and it's never quite pushed back to where it was. And fundamentally, Britain emerges from the First World War as, you know, an almost full democracy. Not really until 1928, but 1918. You know, all men over 21 have got the vote, all women over 30, and you, you, it is now a mass democracy. And you know, this old naive proof system of just allow prices to adjust to where the market says they should be um, relies on you having flexibly. Downward wages. You can't have a system um, in which real wages have to fall when when you've got a full democracy. You now everything is very you know. You could run a system like that when most working class voters didn't have a vote. Now they've got a vote. That system is not going to last very long. And it takes the 1920s for British politicians to realise that. But it's a yeah. It, it, I, I I understanding the 1920s as the long painful adjustment to the post World War One world makes a lot of sense to me.
0: Well, this is a period as well where Winston Churchill, against the advice of Keynes and, and others, went back onto the gold standard. And we we experienced a Great Depression similar to that in the United States. Um, we don't hear about the slump, as it was called, in mm. in Britain quite as often as we do about the American Great Depression. But it was uh, a similar extent, I guess, in many ways. And uh, one thing reading your book I hadn't quite realised was that bits of the Royal Navy mutinied um, at, the, at the time and we had general strikes. Did we come close to the brink uh, at any time? Uh, as, not as close as the Russian Revolution, but how far away were we from from that kind of thing?
1: I'm not sure we ever got close to revolution, but, you know, that... that... I mean, I think the real lesson of the 20s and 30s in Britain is that when economic growth is poor is when politics is at its most fractious. In that, you know, politics, when it's about dividing up the spoils of growth and who gets the size of which pie is easier, than it is about apportioning the costs of um, recession. And, you know, the 20s and 30s, awful time in in totals, particularly the 20s and the early 30s for the British economy. I mean, yeah, so the Invergordon Mutiny which is in um, September 1931. You know, Britain is back on the gold standard. It's been back on the gold standard since 1926. The you know, Great Depression is happening. Wall Street crash happened two years before. Sterling is under a lot of pressure. Um, the government is under uh, pressure to cut the size of its deficit. this you know, breaks the Labour government and that Ramsey Macdonald, Prime Minister and his Chancellor, Philip Snowden, try to push through these cuts. The cabinet resigns. We end up with a national government, which is really just sort of a smattering of Labour and Liberal figures with Conservative MPs in charge. Part of the, the cuts package they've agreed to keep Britain on the gold standard is large cuts in the pay of naval ratings. And when this is, um, you know, when, when the, uh, the fleet up at Invergordon in Scotland learns of this, we get a mutiny on several ships. Um, eventually, it's resolved by the government backing down on the pay cuts. But that's a that's a huge moment, which, then, as you can imagine, you know, thinking back to if you were a bond investor in 1931, and you see that you know a country's agreed an austerity package, and then its navy mutinies, um, it's not great for confidence. <laughs> um, you know, in the end, that's the um, in the end, that's what forces Britain off the gold standard. The fact, you know, I mean, you can make an argument that the most successful monetary policymakers in Britain in the last century were mutinous Royal Naval sailors who um, forced us off this very inappropriate re- uh, regime.
0: Excellent. Well, talking of sailors again, World War II uh, comes along and we, we come out of that yet yet again with huge amounts of debt uh, and with the US now the dominant global player, the Britain's no longer uh, in charge. We're, we're broke in many ways. A lot of our industries have been sold off to America or given in exchange for ships and, and so forth. Um, and ever since then, really, it's arguably been a story of of slow decline on the global scale economically. And yet Germany came out of World War II, obviously flattened to the ground, and grew to be a tremendously successful economy while Britain went the other, other way. I mean, Germany had some martial aid, but... Uh, that can't be the only difference. What, what, what would explain for you the the relative decline of Britain and versus the rise of Germany and others over that period? Yeah, so I
1: mean, it's interesting, isn't it? So you know, we look at the we sort of look at the fifties and sixties um, as this period of you know relative decline. It's weird in a way because you know the growth rates in the nineteen fifties and sixties are faster than the seventies, the eighties, and the nineties, and the faster than the twenties and thirties. You know, it's in some ways two decades with the fastest average growth. Of the last century or so in Britain. But the measure tends to be to compare us to Europe, which was growing a lot faster. Now, some of that is just straightforward catch-up growth in that Britain had already you know, moved a lot of agricultural workers into higher productivity jobs in manufacturing and services in the 19th century if you're moving from a low moving parts of your workforce from low productivity areas to high productivity areas you get a big boost in growth but it's a it's a one-time trick and britain had played that trick a hundred years before so partially if you look at france if you look at italy even germany it's that this is just inevitable um that these countries are going to grow faster because they're 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 they're, they're still industrializing but that can't explain everything you know by the late 1960s it's not just that income per head in France, Germany, Italy has caught up to Britain. It's, it's actually moving ahead. And you know, British commentary at the time is all about what's causing this, um, this British disease of um, slow productivity growth. And you know, exactly where you put the blame depends partially on where your politics sit, but it's some sort of heavy cocktail of um, very contentious labor relations, um, reasonably poor management. Uh, probably, I'm going to quote your uh,
0: the Sunday Times uh, headline <laughs> in the book from 1964: yeah. "Is Britain a half-time country uh, with half-time pay, half-work, and a half management
1: Basically, <laughs> I and I think that's I think that's, I think that's quite fair. Um, I think the, the fundamental problem is that um, you know two things are going on in the really from from the 1930s really, this is before the first before the Second World War. Firstly, you've got Britain. Experiencing this 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 de-globalization. Britain goes from being this incredibly open economy in the before the First World War to slowly becoming a more closed one. So you know more reliant on the empire and then the Commonwealth than it used to be. Um, fewer foreign goods coming into Britain, fewer exports going seas. And in the 1920s and 30s, which then really continues into the 40s and 50s, you get this push for sort of rationalisation. They call it. So, you know, you see the you see in the 1920s, you know, various chemical firms being cobbled together into imperial chemical industries ICI you know there's this idea um you know after the, and then in this after the second world war you see the you know the nationalization of steel of rail um coal mines whatever and you know Britain just becomes a less competitive place um less competition within industry less competition from foreign firms less fighting for export markets overseas and I think you know if you think of you know, this less competitive economy um, cl- insulated from foreign competition, insulated from domestic competition in too many industries, you do start to lose a bit of your uh, productive oomph and Britain slowly, you know, it, 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 underinvestment, poor management, poor industrial relations, all of these things would have been helped by more competition. Which would have forced, you know, the most inefficient firms out of business, allowed resources to be reallocated, but that doesn't happen in Britain. And so, you know, by the time you get to sort of the mid 1970s, um, you know, 70s, are then a step up in crisis. Um, you know, it's clear that something has gone wrong earlier in the 50s and 60s.
0: Well, as a family that owned a succession of British Leyland cars in the 70s and 80s, I'll probably, probably agree with you. I Also, agree in the book you talk about Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy and. Mm. You know, it, it is brilliantly evocative of the nineteen seventies yeah. when you watch the original Alec Guinness uh, yeah. version. You, you almost can't believe it. You think that that's what Eastern Europe must have looked like, but where <laughs> it was our childhood, or well, my childhood <laughs> and, anyway, in in, in Britain. And, you know, inflation. You talk mm. about double digits on average over the seventies. Unemployment at four decade highs. It really, it really was a crisis point.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and it's just. I mean, I think you've got to put it in the context as well of sort of wider changes in, you know, economics and macroeconomics and how policymakers thought about this because, you know, they really thought, you know, by, by the late, you know, by the mid '60s, you know, economists that the, there was a bit of hubris in the profession in that they say, you know, the 1930s isn't going to happen again because we now understand how the business cycle works, we understand we can manage it, we understand, um, you know, how we can use fiscal policy in a downturn to get us at every session. And there's almost this hydraulic thinking that sort of slipped into economics. You know, if I pull lever X, Y will happen. And it's it's something we can understand. The real height of that, you know, the um, the Phillips curve, which, you know, it's a height of economics thinking in the 1960s. So there's this relationship between inflation and unemployment. Um, And policymakers almost start to think of the Phillips curve sort of as a menu. From which they can choose that, you know if I want unemployment to be two and a half percent, inflation will be whatever it 's going to be, and the 70s is a real challenge because you start to get this period of inflation rising to a very rapid clip at the same time as unemployment is rising at the same time that you know, economic growth is becoming more volatile. And it's very hard for a policy elite who've had 20 years of this hydraulic thinking to understand that these are things that aren't meant to happen at the same time. And, you know, you've got all sorts going on in the 70s from the oil shock to the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system and floating exchange rates to, um, you know, um, deregulation of the housing market and mortgage lending to in the early 70s, some of the you know, worst macroeconomic policy of the 20th century in the Barber boom. And it all comes together into this sort of, you know, capitalism, and all of these existing problems of underinvestment, poor management, contentious industrial relations, um, all come together. You know, Britain just ends up with this, you know, what's often seen as this sort of devil's decade of poor economic management. I mean, it, it is worth saying, though, that for all of the problems of the 1970s, you know, unemployment was lower than it was in the 1980s, and median incomes actually hung in there better, even with the inflation. So you know, there they were winners and losers um, to that that period, even if it's generally been taken as this thing to be avoided.
0: Well, we almost ended up like Greece, though, didn't we? We had to go to the IMF mm-hmm. to, to ask for
1: a bailout. Yeah, I mean, Britain had to Britain had to go to the IMF in 1976. Um, Although, you know, it is worth remembering it wasn't to do with the public finances as it was to do with pressure on sterling. You know, the fear was that sterling was losing value very rapidly, that uh, unless something was done to stem the run on sterling, then, you know, the ability for vital imports to be imperiled, inflation would keep climbing, etc. You know, one of the reasons sterling was um, falling was because the public finances were seemed to be in a bad position, but this wasn't about the IMF lending us money to fund public spending. This was about lending us foreign exchange reserves to, and of course, and it was all paid back. And of course, where it became contentious was, as is understandable, the IMF put conditionality on, those, um, on, the, on that lending. And, um, and again, you know, that, was, that was deeply unpopular, um, with much of the Labour government left at the time. Um, but it's really, it's really sort of a turning point. You think back to sort of Jim Callaghan at that point as um, prime minister. You know, it's when he makes the speech. You know, we used to think we could spend our way every session. I tell you now in all candor, we cannot. You know, it's, it's three years before Margaret Thatcher wins in 1979. It's under a Labour prime minister in 1976. You get this top-level, semi-official rejection of traditional Keynesian demand management. You know, everything is in flux in the 1970s.
0: Okay, this brings us neatly on to Margaret Thatcher and I guess perhaps one of the more radical changes in British economic policy um, o- over you know, the period of the book in a way. Yes. We have monetary policy, money, uh, monetary aggregates become the target for uh, monetary policy, we have austerity and we have privatisations. And I guess perhaps when we think about the UK economy over the past few decades, we think about the housing market as being the kind of bellwether of the the, the British economy and the most important thing that anyone ever thinks about that that kind of drives everything now. So suddenly housing becomes really important to us.
1: And it's it's fascinating that point. I remember when I I was working at Newsnight, I used to do a lot of stories in, um, you know, around other parts of Europe. It was always fascinating that if you ask, I remember thinking in 2015, if you ask, Um, Greeks about the economy, they instantly start talking about the IMF. If you ask Germans about the economy, they start talking about manufacturing, market share and competitors. And if you ask British people about the economy, they talk about house prices. I thought that was a nice sort of snapshot of um, how the economy is perceived around different parts of Europe there. But yeah, I mean, I, I think... Yeah, I think it's fair to say Margaret Thatcher is, along with Clement Attlee after the war, one of the two prime ministers who make the most lasting changes to the shape of the economy in the 20th century. I mean, arguably over the last 200 odd years. And yes, it's in the housing market is another one of Thatcher's big changes. Um, I think it's worth saying to start with, you know, the macroeconomic record of Margaret Thatcher is distinctly mixed. I mean, you know, she opens with, I mean, a, a very, very deep recession, uh, policy are they almost certainly too tight? Unemployment going to the highest it's been in decades. We then by the end have the lost boom in which everything overheats, um, and then another you know bust in the early 90s. It's really bust, boom, bust. The supply side changes though are are more interesting, more lasting. You know, talking before about. You know, the idea of the British economy had become deeply uncompetitive by the 1960s, 1970s. I mean, that starts to change in the 80s with the privatizations, with the breaking up monopolies, with the um, you know, the real impact of joining the European economic community and opening Britain up more to foreign competition. You all start to see in this sort of productivity catch-up, which starts in the mid to late 80s. But the housing market is interesting. You know, Britain Britain becomes an, uh, a nation with over 50% owner occupation in the very early 1970s. And that really accelerates in the 1980s with the sale of um, cancel state-owned housing to um, tenants at a discount. I mean, that's probably the single largest wealth transfer from state to individual in British history is selling off a lot of this housing stock. And it, yeah, I mean, it, you know, you create a nation of homeowners, and a nation of homeowners is very different to a nation of renters. If nothing else, in how they think about interest rates. I mean, I always think it's interesting you look at the, you know, 1950s and 1960s, and you know, interest rates are something which obviously matter to firms planning borrowing and capital expenditure, but for most householders, they're quite insulated from it once you're into a nation of mortgage holders, particularly as Britain's often had a high proportion of floating rate mortgage holders, then suddenly, you know, the Bank of England changing interest rates is something that's on the news. Um, and, and, you know, it's not something for the Financial Times. It's something for the mainstream press. Right? It's one of the lasting changes in in Britain over the last, you know, um, few decades is, the, is, is has been the increase in homeowners. Now, whether or not that's going into reverse now that it looks like um, you, you we're seeing a rising private rental market again. I don't know, but that's certainly one of the major changes of the 70s
0: and 80s. Excellent. I, I guess um, you know the book will finish on, we'll go through the global mm. financial crisis, we've got mm. the pandemic, and I guess very importantly as well, we've got Brexit and mm. reversal of some of those trends that we we saw over the period mm. you're talking about. But in the interest of times, I think we're, we're coming at the end now. Mm. I mean, you call the book muddling through. What, what, why is that in a way? Do you think that the British... Economic history is more confused, more chaotic, more seat of your pants than perhaps other nations around the world is is it kind of uniquely uh, because i don 't know David Smith also wrote a book which had a, yeah. a similar view of yeah. uh, turn up or something like it was called um, yeah. is the u k or Great Britain as it 's been over the period more chaotic than other other places it 's a good question
1: um, I suspect it probably is, and I think that um I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think partially because we were talking about before this knave proof system of the late 19th century. You know, this came alongside the time that Britain was the dominant global economic power. And the lesson a lot of the British elite took from that was, was that, you know, Britain runs, you know, the British economy runs itself quite well as long as we don't interfere with it. So so smaller liberal bias. You certainly see through, you know, throughout the Treasury um, lasting to this day. Um, And, of course, you get into the 20th century and you get, you know, the challenge of American industrialization, German industrialization, Japanese industrialization, rise of East Asia. Nowadays, Europe catching up in the 50s and 60s. Um, And, you know, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, that involved a much more hands-on approach from government um, than Britain itself had used. And then Britain... um, yeah, so you've got sort of this sort of desire to be hands-off, coupled with this sort of, you know, rising threats and fears of relative decline attempts to at politicians. So, politicians will try one thing, then they'll try another, you know, tend to have a political system which swings between two parties, which are organized on traditionally, until more recently, class-based lines. You get these sudden swings. I mean, just look at privatization in Britain, where you had the steel industry being um, nationalized in the 1940s, then privatized in the 50s and 60s, and then renationalized in the 70s, 60s, then privatized again in the 1980s. You don't often get those sort of big changes in the economic borders between public and private sector so many times in other countries where you have the longer-term planning. I think that I think I think my concluding thought would be that you know all politicians are buffeted by economic headwinds and economic tailwinds. Um, but there has been a tendency in Britain often to avoid taking difficult choices, which can be left to your successor, and to sort of keep your head down, muddle through, hope it all turns out all right in the end. And y- you get some politicians who have made radical changes, but they are, they are few and far between. So yes, muddling through because yeah, it's, a, it's a confused, contested, and complicated picture of um, British economic history. Thank you very much. Uh, the book 200
0: Years of Muddling Through the Surprising Story of Britain's Economy from Boom to Bust and Back Again is out now. It's a great read um, and good luck with it.
1: Thank you.